it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. 2-2-22. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host, live from New York City. I'm here in New York City to host Kennedy Tonight on Fox Business at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you there. And, of course, to host this show every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't catch us live as we air, we have a podcast. It is free. It is on demand daily. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything available right there. GuyBensonShow.com. If you're looking for the podcast specifically, you can go to that same website or to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On today's show, here's our lineup. Katie McFarland will join us later this hour to analyze the speech that we're about to play for you from President Biden minutes ago involving Ukraine, Russia, new sanctions, threats of consequence, and warnings about pain here at home. KT with her analysis coming up this hour. In the next hour, we will also ask Secretary Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, about this whole panoply of issues. President Trump put out a statement earlier basically saying, if I were president, none of this would have happened. Is that true? Does Secretary Pompeo agree? What are the fair knocks on the Biden administration when it comes to Russian aggression? We will get to that with Pompeo upcoming. Also in our middle hour, the 4 p.m. Eastern hour, we will welcome back to the show Glenn Youngkin. Last time he was on the show, he was candidate Glenn Youngkin. He is now governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. Really looking forward to that conversation, talking about his first month plus in office. He's racked up some serious wins. He won't be the State of the Union responder for the Republicans, which was my proposal. They announced today it will be Kim Reynolds, the Republican governor of Iowa. But a lot to discuss with Governor Yunkin. That's coming up. And finally, in our last hour, Martha McCallum, host of The Story, which is on Fox News Channel right now. She will be up here on the radio side just after 5 p.m. Eastern. Fox News alert. As we begin things, the case count of COVID. Here are the stats. All in, over the course of the pandemic, 78.4 million in the United States. Those are confirmed cases. It's a low ball by a lot. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID in the United States over that same time period, now 934,659. The Dow is down 338 points right now to 33,740, but that is significantly better than session lows Leading up to Biden's speech, where the Dow was off more than 600 points, and it seems like things have stabilized just a little bit, at least temporarily. And we'll keep an eye on that heading into the closing bell just about 50 minutes from right now. Fox News alert. As we mentioned, President Biden reacting to the Russian invasion yesterday, late last night here on the East Coast, 
into sovereign Ukrainian territory. In the Dunbar region, this is an official invasion, even though the Russians had been meddling heavily in that area now for a period of years. There are movements now of Russian troops. We've heard some reports about those movements. Putin asked the Duma, which is his parliament, to approve Russian forces to enter non Russian territory in this area. He's gotten that approval, at least from one of the houses. I mean, it's a total rubber stamp. It's it's a it's a farce. Putin does whatever he wants. And the question then became, what is the West going to do in response? It's not a full blown invasion, at least not yet, of Ukraine. We haven't seen tanks, for example, rolling toward Kiev or bombardment or missiles or anything like that. But it is an invasion. And yesterday, for a while, the administration's line seemed to be, well, let's wait and see. Is this really a full invasion? Does this trigger all the crippling sanctions? Now they have today been calling it an invasion in no uncertain terms, which is correct. But what are they going to do about it? And it seems like at least for now, they are trying to do a response with retaliations that are commensurate with the severity in their mind of what Putin has done while holding back some of the heavier artillery, not militarily, but in terms of sanctions and other consequences, holding that back until and unless Putin decides to go even further. That was the takeaway in my mind from what you're about to hear. I want to play for you Biden's speech. It's not that long. He makes some good and fair points. He, I think, continues to show some equivocation and weakness or at least rhetoric that doesn't match the actions of the West. He does talk about some sanctions that are being slapped on Russia right now. And as you'll hear, he did struggle, I think, with his delivery throughout the speech. But here was President Biden, as I mentioned, minutes ago at the White House. Listen. Yesterday, Vladimir Putin recognized two regions of Ukraine as independent states. And he bizarrely asserted that these regions are no longer part of Ukraine and their sovereign territory. To put it simply, Russia just announced that it is carving out a big chunk of Ukraine. Last night, Putin authorized Russian forces to deploy into the region, these regions. Today, he asserted that these regions are actually extend deeper than the two areas he recognized, claiming large areas currently under the jurisdiction of the Ukraine government. He's setting up a rationale to take more territory by force, in my view. And if we listened to his speech last night, and many of you did, I know, he's, uh, he's setting up a rationale to go much further. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. So let's begin to uh, So I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. Over the last few months, we've coordinated closely with our NATO allies and partners in Europe and around the world to prepare that response. 
We've said all along, and I've told Putin to his face some month, a month or more than a month ago, that we would act together. And the moment Russia moved against Ukraine, Russia has now undeniably moved against Ukraine by declaring these independent states. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners, and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. We're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. And because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. As Russia contemplates its next move, we have our next move prepared as well. Russia will pay an even steeper price if it continues its aggression, including additional sanctions. The United States will continue to provide defensive assistance to Ukraine in the meantime, and will continue to reinforce and reassure our NATO allies. Today, in response to Russia's admission that it will not withdraw its forces from Belarus, I have authorized additional movements of U.S. forces and equipment already stationed in Europe to strengthen our Baltic allies, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Let me be clear. These are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. We want to send an unmistakable message, though, that the United States, together with our allies, will defend every inch of NATO territory and abide by the commitments we made to NATO. We still believe that Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. Hope I'm wrong about that. Hope we're wrong about that. But Russia has only escalated its threat against the rest of Ukrainian territory, including major cities and including the capital city of Kyiv. There are, there are still well over 150,000 Russian troops surrounding Ukraine. And as I said, Russian forces remain positioned in Belarus to attack Ukraine from the north, including warplanes and offensive missile systems. Russia has moved troops closer to Ukraine's border with Russia. Russia's naval vessels are maneuvering in the Black Sea to Ukraine's south, including amphibious assault ships, missile cruisers, and submarines. Russia's moved supplies of blood and medical equipment into position on their border. You don't need blood unless you plan on starting a war. Over the last few days, we've seen much of the playbook that Secretary Blinken laid out last week in the United Nations Security Council come to pass. A major increase in military provocations and false flag events along the line of contact in the Donbass. Dramatically staged, conveniently on-camera meeting of Putin's Security Council to grandstand for the Russian public. And now, political provocation of recognizing sovereign Ukrainian territory as so-called independent re republics in clear violation, again, of international law. President Putin has sought authorization from the Russian parliament to use military force outside of Russian territory. 
And this set the stage for further pretext of further provocations by Russia to try to justify further military action. None of us, none of us should be fooled. None of us will be fooled. There is no justification. Further Russian assault in Ukraine remains a severe threat in the days ahead. And if Russia proceeds, it is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. As we respond, my administration is using every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumers from rising prices at the pump. As I said last week, defending freedom will have cost for us as well and here at home. We need to be honest about that. But as we will do — but as we do this, I'm going to take robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at a Russian economy, not ours. We're closely monitoring energy supplies for any disruption. We're executing a plan in coordination with major oil-producing consumers and producers toward a collective investment to secure stability in global energy supplies. This will be — this will blunt gas prices. I want to limit the pain the American people are feeling at the gas pump. This is critical to me. In the last few days, I've been in constant contact with European leaders, including with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Vice President Harris met in person with the leaders in Germany over the weekend in, at the Munich conference, including President Zelensky. At every step, we have shown the United States and our allies and partners are working in unison, which he hasn't been counting on, Mr. Putin. We're united in our support of Ukraine. We are united in our opposition to Russian aggression. And we're united in our resolve to defend our NATO alliance. And we're united in our understanding of the urgency and seriousness of the threat Russia is making to global peace and stability. Yesterday, the world heard clearly the full extent of Vladimir Putin's twisted rewrite of history, going back more than a century, as he waxed eloquently, noting that well, I'm not going to go into it, but nothing in Putin's lengthy remarks indicate any interest in pursuing real dialogue on European security in the year 2022. He directly attacked Ukraine's right to exist. He indirectly threatened territorial formerly held by Russia, including nations that today are thriving democracies and members of NATO. He explicitly threatened war unless his extreme demands were met. And there is no question that Russia is the aggressor. So we're clear-eyed about the challenges we're facing. Nonetheless, there is still time to avert the worst-case scenario that will bring untold suffering to millions of people if they move as suggested. The United States and our allies and partners remain open to diplomacy, if it is serious. When all is said and done, we're going to judge Russia by its actions, not its words. And whatever Russia does next, we're ready to respond with unity, clarity, and conviction. We'll probably have more to say about this as it moves on. I'm hoping diplomacy is still available. Thank you all very much. And then he turned and walked off. No questions today for President Biden. And look, setting aside the shaky delivery, and it was noticeably shaky at times, and I think that sort of thing does matter, especially when you're on a global stage and you've got a guy like Putin watching there were some lines that were strong, even if they weren't really delivered that well. The question is, are the actions going to back up the words? And it strikes me that the type of sanctions announced today 
were more small ball than hard ball. That could change. And I think some of this is just with an eye to see what, if anything, Russia is going to do next. As the president pointed out, talking about Russia importing supplies of blood to the border, he said you don't need blood if you're not going to start a war. I think that that definitely would be one of the ominous signs. And the president also admonished Americans that defending freedom will have costs, including here at home, the price of oil, the price of fuel will go up, and that will be painful more than it already is. So a very volatile situation, a dangerous one in the Donbass region. I misspoke earlier, misidentified it. The Donbass region of Ukraine, which has now been invaded by Russia. Katie McFarland will react to the speech coming up here in a little bit. We are just getting started. It is the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Governor Romney's answer I thought was incredibly revealing. He acts like he thinks the Cold War is still on. Russia is still our major adversary. I don't know where he's been. I mean, we have disagreements with Russia, but they're united with us on Iran. The only way we're getting, one of only two ways we're getting material into Afghanistan to our troops is through Russia. They are working closely with us. They've just said to Europe, if there is an oil shutdown in any way in the Gulf, they'll consider increasing oil supplies to Europe. That's not, this is not 1956. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was... Then Vice President Joe Biden mocking Republican Mitt Romney, who is running for president, who correctly identified Russia as a top geopolitical foe of the United States back then. The Democrats taking a softer line on Russia at the time, mocking that notion. You'll remember Barack Obama saying, oh, the 80s called Governor Romney and they want their uh, foreign policy back. That got a big laugh and a lot of cheers from the press at the time. Maybe not so much laughter or cheering now when Vladimir Putin is doing what he's doing. And I'm all for Biden saying here are some new sanctions and we're going to redeploy some American troops to fortify the Baltics. That's good. And we're pausing, at least for now, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They should have never greenlit it in the first place. Those are positive steps. I'm not sure they are steps that really change things very much, at least from Putin's perspective. We'll see if KT McFarland agrees. Her analysis on President Biden's speech is next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. (laughs) His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We return to the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition from New York. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. And with us now is Katie McFarland, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor. She has served in multiple presidential administrations over the course of her career. 
She's author of the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, good to have you back here. Great to be with you. Thank you. Well, we just heard about an hour ago from the president of the United States. He came out and, as anticipated, announced some new moves in response to what Russia has been up to in the eastern portion of Ukraine, some sanctions, some movement of U.S. troops to reinforce NATO allies in the region. What are your big takeaways from what we heard earlier from President Biden? You know, I just keep thinking back to a picture of Vladimir Putin when he was meeting with President Obama. Um, it was a, right about the time that he took you, that he took Crimea and annexed it into Russia. And President Putin was picking the lint off his shoulder of his suit while President Obama was talking. And I thought, that's exactly what President Putin's going to do now. He's just going to pick the lint off the top of his suit. Because President Biden, I mean, he didn't say anything. He said, oh, we're going to get tough. We're really going to have tough, tough sanctions. And then he didn't announce any tough, tough sanctions. The only, the real problem with Ukraine is it was lost a year ago. When President Biden gave up American energy, when he shut down the American oil and natural gas industry, when he shut down the Keystone Pipeline, and when he gave permission for the Russians to continue the the energy supply of Europe that they already had, and then to go ahead with Keystone, um, with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, at that point, the, the goose was cooked. Because what happened, predictably, was the price of energy skyrocketed, oil and natural gas, that meant that Vladimir Putin was rich again. He had, he had twice as much money in his coffers from the export of oil and natural gas that he had anticipated. And he realized that he could do whatever he wanted, not only because he was rich again, but because the Europeans are completely dependent upon Russian energy to fuel their factories, heat their homes, um, power their cars. And as a result, Vladimir Putin can do whatever he wants with Ukraine, really with Europe, whenever he wants. And unless the United States goes back to having a pro-energy policy, and unless we go to the Europeans and say, we will guarantee your energy security, then I think Vladimir Putin, you know, he'll digest what he's got now to new provinces, but he'll come back for a little more another year from now. Yeah, so I guess that goes to my next question. When you say Putin can do whatever he wants in Ukraine— what does he want in Ukraine? Do you think he wants the whole thing? Do you think he wants to topple the government? Do you think he wants to go to Kiev and take it? Do you think he wants to occupy the country? Because I know we've been told to expect that as a very real possibility. It's also possible, I would imagine, KT, that, and you just alluded to this, he would bite off yet another part of Ukraine and let that new status quo marinate for a while, maybe mm-hmm. even for a few years, and then come take another bite down the line with some new but familiar pretext. I mean, he could do that. He could go much more aggressive. What do you see coming here? I've studied Vladimir Putin since the 1990s. I've read his, his graduate school dissertation. He always said that he would he Russia could rebuild itself as a great Russian empire if it used its oil and natural gas exports to get rich and then also to get leverage as a result of the dependency that Europe particularly would have on his energy. And he's followed that game plan. His long-range goal was always to sort of undo what Reagan did. So Reagan put in policies that caused the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. 
Putin wants to undo that. He wants to create again a new Soviet empire, and he wants that. He didn't. He didn't think the Cold War was done. We may have won that round, but he plans to win the next round. As far as specifically with regard to Ukraine, yes, he would love to have Ukraine under Moscow's control. Does he want to do it by sending in tanks and occupying maybe Maiden Square in Kiev? No, I don't think so. I mean, why bother? He's got what he wants now. I assume that what will happen in the next couple of days and weeks is that the government of Ukraine right now will either concede to what Putin has done so far or they'll, they'll disappear and there'll be a new pro-Russian government in Kiev. And, and, and Ukraine will turn into Finland. It won't become a Western ally. It'll become closer to Russia. And it certainly will never become a member of NATO. Ukrainians, and we heard from President Zelensky, he gave a speech last night. I mean, they sound defiant in the face of this threat. They said Russia has no right to this. We'll fight. We'll fight hard to the bitter end. I know General Keene has mentioned that they are very much prepared to fight, even if it's a guerrilla battle against an mm-hmm. occupier for many years to come. That might be one of the reasons why Putin decides let's not fully invade the country here. I don't need all of that blood. I don't need that death toll of Russian soldiers. On the other hand, in Putin's speech yesterday, he claimed that Ukraine isn't even a real country, which is a pretty chilling thing for him to say. What is your reaction to that? Well, I just look at the timeline. When President Biden came into office, he immediately started shutting down the U.S. energy industry. Then he met with with Putin at the beginning of summer, and he said, "Okay, go ahead with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And he did not do any retaliatory action against Putin for all of the cyber attacks that were going on against American energy. And then fast forward another six weeks, Putin puts out a statement saying, we, Russia, reserve the right to, quote, defend ethnic Russians wherever they are, anywhere in the world. And now what you see is Putin going into Ukraine, taking two provinces, which have a very high percentage of the population is ethnic Russian, and he will, I'm assuming within the next week, he will annex them to part of Russia. Um, Couldn't he do the same thing based on that same standard? Couldn't he also do the same thing in NATO countries? Sure. And that's the real worry, is that he, he having taken and, and digesting, and I think you're quite right, why, why launch an invasion? Why send tanks across the border? Why? That's risky. You know, there could be a lot of civilian casualties. That might get NATO to unify. It might stiffen the back of NATO. Far better that Putin takes what he has now, digests it, waits a while for his next moment and his next opportunity. But, you know, Ukraine... Ukraine is, is part of historically part of Russia. It's not a terrific country to want to have right now. It's the, one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Its population is 50% of what it was even a few years ago because young Ukrainians have all left Ukraine and they've gone to Western Europe. And their economy is about 40% of what it was at the end of the Cold War. It's not a terrific prize. It would probably cost more for Russia to maintain and and aid and, and rebuild Ukraine than it would to do anything else. So I think Putin's gotten what he's wanted. But what he's really after is to show how divided NATO is. And that's what I think you've seen in the last week. President Biden can talk about, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, sanctions here, sanctions there. But the Germans aren't talking about that. The Germans said they're going to cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Well, for how long? The Nord Stream and the Pipeline. Germans, I mean, sorry, the Nord Stream Pipeline. But the question is, for how long? Right, you know, they're not the dismantling it, right? They're kind of 
they're not freezing. dismantling it. They're, they're just freezing it. It's already built. And the Germans have to give permission, you know, like a an occupancy, you know, certification of occupancy. They have to say, okay, it's all ready. We can turn it on now. And that's what they're halting for now. And in any event, Putin has already gotten an agreement with the Chinese two weeks ago where the Chinese said, we guarantee we're going to buy all your energy. If you don't want to give it to Europe, we'll be happy to take it. So Putin's got an out, and the second backup buyer already lined up. Um, I, I really just think that the fissure that this has shown between what the United States may want out of Europe and what the Europeans are willing to do to defend themselves is pretty significant. You know, if you're the German chancellor right now, half of your industry relies on Russian energy to, to um, heat your homes, to power your cars. To and what a policy factory. failure, right? If that's the reality, what a policy failure going back years to allow yourself to perhaps, you know, be brought to your knees by the Russian government, a rapacious Russian government run by a thug, that was a series of choices made by the German government for quite some time. KT, I do want to ask you, though, about the president's speech in particular. We played it earlier at the top of the show. There were some things that President Biden talked about, certain new sanctions, promising worse and more painful ones if Russia continues to escalate here. He talked about the Nord Stream pipeline and the, and the freezing there, not the dismantling I mean, I'm not intricately familiar with which of the sanctions are really heavy duty and which are more warning shots. I get the sense that what we heard announced moments ago, that was more on the warning shot side of things than anything that might be described as crippling. Is that a safe assessment on my part or am I missing it? No, you're, you're right. The, the only real significant sanctions that we could apply on Russia to potentially change their behavior are two. One, go back to pushing American energy. Go to the Europeans and say, we will make you energy self-sufficient. We'll make up for whatever you're not getting from Russia. You will have clean, uh, cheap, reliable American natural gas instead of undependable Russian stuff. And then we would also say to the Russians, we would kick them out of what's called the international banking system. Mm -hmm. It's called SWIFT. Swift. And that means Russia could it would have a very difficult time trading with the rest of the world. But and we could do it on our own, but we've already had the Germans and the French and the Italians who already said, well, maybe we shouldn't go that Let's far. wait and see. And then we had more wait, wait and see from President Biden today, right? Here's some slaps Correct. on the wrist, maybe, you know, more than a slight slap, a hard slap on the wrist. But nonetheless, a we're going to wait and see. And we could do more if they do more. It feels like more of a waiting game, I guess. Here's my prediction. A week from now, two weeks from now, President Biden will take a victory lap saying that he's prevented, averted World War III because the Russians didn't invade Ukraine. And at the same time, the Russians will be very happy. Well, he said they already did, right? We've, he announced today that they did invade Ukraine. You're saying like more into Ukraine, a, a deeper yeah, right. incursion. Yes. Okay. I think in a week from now, we're gonna, he'll, he'll be describing this as a minor incursion. Which is kind of what he said at the press conference on January 20th, right? And then walked it back. Yes. But it almost was like that set some expectations that now might be met by Putin. I mean, I don't think that's a crazy thing to say at this point based on where things stand now. It could all change, of course, literally overnight. But for yeah. now, the minor incursion thing, to use his phrase, seems to be what Putin has done, at least thus far. Yes, it'll be very similar to Putin taking Ukraine, I mean, taking Crimea from Ukraine after the last Olympics. 
Katie McFarland, she's made some bold predictions. We will watch what Putin decides to do and what his calculus is and whether that calculus changes at all from external pressures or internal pressures within Russia. And for now, it very much seems to be we will wait and we will watch and see what Putin decides because I cannot imagine that the response that we heard earlier today from President Biden is going to really shake things up that much in terms of what Putin has already decided. I can't imagine, KT, that that was a game changer of a speech from President Biden. Just briefly before we let you go, I would imagine you agree, not a game change at all from Biden today. It won't even get a yawn from Vladimir Putin. Katie McFarland, former Trump deputy national security advisor. She served under multiple presidential administrations. She's written the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. Katie, we always enjoy your time, your insights. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure very much so. Bye. Talk to you soon. That's Katie McFarland on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, still to come on the program today, we look forward to the next hour with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, and then in our final hour, Martha McCallum as well. That's all still on tap here on the Guy Benson Show today from New York City. I'm in town to host Kennedy. I did that last night, again tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business I saw this poll out today from Emerson, which has a hit-and-miss record, I would say, as a pollster, as they all do. But Emerson has the generic ballot for 2022, the overall question, which party would you prefer control Congress, at GOP plus nine. Republicans up nine points in this Emerson poll on this metric. And look— That's an outlier, but there have been others in that same ballpark, at least, in recent weeks. A few others go the other direction, or it's roughly tied. It's all over the map. This is usually, as we've mentioned before, a metric on which Democrats have an advantage. And the fact that they are trailing at this stage of the cycle in the average on the congressional ballot, even if you want to discount the nine-point outlier poll, if you think it's an outlier, that's a very bad sign for the Democratic Party right now. And I saw a piece, an analysis, I believe it was last week, from Harry Enten, who's uh, one of these number crunchers, political people at CNN. And he wrote, this number, the generic ballot, is likely to get worse for the Democrats in the coming months. Why? He said just, you know, setting aside events, right, you can't really imagine or predict exactly how events are going to go in the future. He said simply by virtue of the way that polling starts to change, the closer you get to an election, and this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but pollsters start to put what is called a likely voter filter onto their numbers. Right now, they're polling U.S. adults or they're polling registered voters. And those groups typically, typically tend to lean a little bit more toward the Democrats than likely voters, especially likely voters in an environment like this, where I think the likeliest voters, and we saw this in New Jersey, 
and Virginia, the likeliest voters this cycle are going to be more right-leaning voters. And so once they start polling just likely voters, the numbers very well could, and if history is a guide, will get better for the Republicans and worse for the Democrats. That's assuming all things are roughly equal over the coming months, which very well could be the case. Maybe there'll be a a turn of fortune for President Biden and he'll improve. I think he'll still be in trouble. I don't think he can make up all this ground. I don't think he has it in him. I don't think that he is able to do that given the number of problems, the sheer volume of crises and elements of dissatisfaction that the American people are feeling. Even if you give him a bit of a rebound, he'll still be underwater and in trouble. But it could get worse, right? Not just the polling, but the actual events on the ground. Inflation could get worse. With this crisis here, the prices of uh, gasoline at home could get steeper and higher, right? It could get worse. The, the cost of heating your home in these cold winter months. So I'm not convinced that we've reached Biden's floor yet either, which is probably a pretty scary prospect for the White House. Meanwhile, there are reports that sometime in the coming week or so, we will get Biden's Supreme Court nominee. Maybe he wants to time that and line it up with the State of the Union address. That is something he would very much like to pivot to away from basically everything else. So we'll keep an eye out for that nominee, a black woman, as we know. The identity of that person will be revealed supposedly relatively soon. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Mike Pompeo next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour of the Guy Benson Show is here, and we're glad to have you with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free, on demand, if you can't catch the program as it airs, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. We're doing the show from New York City today. I'm filling in again tonight for Kennedy on Fox Business Network. That's in the 7 p.m. hour, Eastern Time. Radio side, again, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow slid to the finish today, closing down 482 points to 34,000. Check that, 33,596, with the markets obviously spooked about what they're seeing in Europe and here at home, the implications of this crisis for our economy and oil prices globally and a, a lot of other complex and overlapping factors. So a down day on Wall Street, unsurprisingly. Joining us now is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who's a Fox News contributor, chairman of CAVPAC. You can find him on Twitter, at Mike Pompeo. Mr. Secretary, it's great to have you back here. Welcome. It's great to be with you again today. Hope you're well. I am doing well. We watched right before our show President Biden speak. We played the entire speech of roughly nine minutes at the top of the first hour. I wonder what your thoughts were watching the president today. You know, Guy, it felt to me very much like it was months and months late and several billion rubles short of what's needed to actually deter Vladimir Putin from continuing his march across Eastern Europe. 
Uh, we'll have to see what really meets the eye. He suggested they were going to put sanctions on some banks and some financial institutions and on Putin himself. That's all. That's all fine. It probably should have been done a long time ago. But the, the rubber will meet the road to see the scope and the breadth of those sanctions, that they really have the impact that is necessary to put enormous financial pressure on Vladimir Putin and his oligarchs and the regime there in Russia. If we do those things, there's a chance that we will change the calculus for Vladimir Putin. In the meantime, uh, what we can see for sure, you, you mentioned the financial markets being world today. Uh, for every American, we're going to find, if we don't get this right, that we have higher food prices. Lots of red winter wheat comes out of Ukraine and out of Western Russia. We're going to have higher energy prices because not only now have we uh, allowed Russia to uh, impede the flow of uh, crude, crude oil and natural gas across the world, but we've shut down our own energy industry. And so, you know, the 97 bucks a barrel oil is fueling Vladimir Putin's capacity to do precisely what we saw him today. I, I, don't, I don't think what we saw President Biden announce today is going to turn the tide. I don't think it's going to convince Vladimir Putin to change his view that a minor incursion is completely acceptable. Mr. Secretary, I was actually thinking last night about a trip that you invited me along for when you were Secretary of State. I was part of the press contingent, and we had one of our stops in Sochi, Russia. And I remember walking into the room, and all of a sudden, there was Vladimir Putin 10 feet away from me, which he does have a bit of a chilling presence. Earlier in the day, there was a joint press event with you and your then-counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, who, of course, is still the foreign minister in Moscow. And I had the opportunity to ask one of the questions of the minister, and it was about their meddling at the time in Venezuela. And you may or may not remember, but he launched into this Jeremiah, this alternate (laughs) history, right? Just he was angry and attacking the West, and they had all these, you know, grievances about imperialism and all this nonsense to deflect away from what the Russians were doing. And I thought about that because of the speech we heard from Putin himself yesterday with that wild roller coaster of his version of world history. This is part of the Russian government's whole worldview, right, that, that they're sort of the good guys, unsurprisingly, but the whole rest of the world is sort of aligned against them, and they have this special, unique version of truth that really doesn't actually align with objective truth. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that, hearing from Putin yesterday, including his remarks about Ukraine not even being, in his view, a real country or a legitimate country. Guy, I remember that trip very well. That would have been the final time that I actually was with Vladimir Putin. Your point about him being chilling is true. It's also the case that he is cunning and uh, a risk taker and someone who thinks that, in fact, the destruction of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. That's what you heard from Foreign Minister Lavrov in response to your question. I remember it well. Mm -hmm. He went on for quite some time with a, a fantastical recitation of history that is certainly not the history that the rest of the world knows. Whether we know it or not, they have their own view, and you see the results that Vladimir Putin has undertaken to to, to rebuild what they believe is rightfully theirs, the, the West task, the West task, uh, NATO, Europe, the United States, uh, all, all of us who believe that every human being has a dignity and that well, rule of law matters, those, those basic precepts, we have to impose costs at a significant level in a way that will deter whether it's Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or Chairman Kim in North Korea. We have to do the things that will preserve the order of the world that we have come to benefit from, prosperity, security here at home, 
depends on our willingness to continue to do the things that drive uh, a world that behaves in a way that's consistent with what we hope to accomplish uh, as, the, as the world moves forward, a, a set of rules, not a set of autocratic dictators driving world history. Former President Trump put out a statement earlier. He also gave an interview as well, and he was asked about what's happening in Ukraine right now, what the Russians are doing. And the long and the short of his response is Putin and the Russians would never have done this. It would not have been fathomable if I were president. Do you think that's true? Here's what I, I know for certain. Uh, Vladimir Putin, when you met him when I was a secretary of state and long before that, hasn't changed. His view as a KG, former KGB officer, his view of history, his desire to recreate the, the buffer zone for Russia, that hasn't changed. What changed after the four years that I was secretary of state and President Trump was president? What changed was American leadership. We, we showed up and said climate change is the most important thing in the world to us. Uh, we said, if you shut down a gasoline pipeline in the southeast of the United States, no, no problem. Please just don't do it again. We gave him a, a, a new treaty, an extension of a treaty that we would have never given them. And I think he saw, I think he saw a green light. And so I can only say this for sure. It didn't happen on our watch for those four years. It is, seems unfathomable to me that Vladimir Putin would have undertaken such an endeavor were we still there. As for the pipeline, and a lot of people have made the point many times that the Biden administration came in, shut down our big pipeline here, and then gave a thumbs up to Putin's pipeline over there. At least today, there is an indication from President Biden that that Nord Stream 2 pipeline has been put on hold, a freeze. It's not been taken apart or destroyed or dismantled, but that oil is not going to start flowing, at least not yet. The Germans are willing to be on board to some extent, at least for a while. Is that, I know, too little, too late. You sort of opened the interview with that sentiment. Is that at least some form of progress? And what do you make of the new German government? They seem like they've been kind of difficult to deal with uh, for the Biden administration from a U.S. perspective. It's a good step. I applaud that. I think uh, putting the certification on hold is good. But in the end, you have to make clear to the Russians that they're never going to get the capacity to control energy for the for Europe, As in particular Germany. You mentioned them being difficult. Yes, they have a they have a long history with Russia. It is not unsurprising. They have deep economic ties to them. Uh, I'm glad that the new chancellor in Germany made this decision. There needs to be a corresponding decision, too, Guy. It's really important. Europeans are now going to suffer greatly. They've come to depend on this energy for, coming from Russia. We now need to be the swing producer. We now need to open up American natural gas, open up American crude oil, let, us, let our employers drill on federal lands, build our pipelines, and become the world's swing producer for natural gas and crude oil. This will deny Vladimir Putin the wealth that comes from 90 bucks a barrel for crude oil, and it will provide affordable energy for the Western world. We, we need to do each of these two things, and when we do, I think Putin will come to see that we are serious, and he'll have to really do his calculus completely differently. We're in a bit of a waiting game now, I think, in the West and trying to get inside Putin's head. What does he really want out of this whole crisis? What does he hope to achieve? How far is he willing to go? There are some indications, and we've been telling, or we've been told rather, that U.S. intelligence thinks they could go and sack Kiev. They could take over the whole country, occupy the country, overthrow the democratically elected government. That seems like it could be on the table very much still. There is another school of thought that suggests Maybe this is just another bite, so to speak, out of Ukraine that Putin has decided to take. He 
grabbed Crimea with virtually no consequence during the Obama administration. Now he's gotten these so-called separatist regions uh, sort of under the dominion of Russia. He could kind of stop there, talk about his own restraint, having invaded Ukraine's sovereign territory even further, and then call it a day at least for a while and then not incur a bunch of potential casualties in, in, an, in a war or some sort of insurgency from the Ukrainian people. Do you have a guess on where this goes from here? My guess, Guy, is contingent on how the West responds. <laughs> I think he is I think he's absolutely keeping the option over of going deeper, further, whether it's along the south, what would be south and west of Luhansk and Donetsk, Odessa cutting Kiev off from the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea, or whether he moves from the north or even from the east into Kiev uh, through the rest of Ukraine. I think that turns on the the West response. Are we serious about imposing sanctions on him, on him and the people around him? Are we serious about making sure that Europe has the energy that it needs to turn the lights on and keep their electricity flowing at reasonable prices? Are we, are we serious about confronting them in all the various forms? Don't forget, Guy, we are up against the Russians nose-to-nose in the Middle East. We know that, as, as you asked the question of Sergei Lavrov, we know that the Russians are still meddling around in Venezuela. And we know that they've used cyber tools. If, if we aren't serious about confronting Russian power, Russian increased aggression in every one of these formats and in every one of these places around the world, then I think the likelihood that Vladimir Putin says, I think I can do this. My costs are actually much lower than some have thought. And I'm watch me. I'll do this. I'll do it successfully. And we will begin to rebuild uh, the East and we will begin to destroy the West and undermine and create chaos in the West and uh, Europe and the United States. Mr. Secretary, since you invoked the Middle East, let me ask you a question about Iran. It seems like, as we saw during the previous Democratic administration under President Obama, the Biden administration is following suit in this absolute fanatical devotion to having a nuclear deal with the regime in Iran. And there are reports now that the Biden administration is getting closer and closer to what could be a very substantial giveaway again to the Iranian regime, the exact opposite of the Trump administration policy that you've articulated many times. And there are you know, whispers and rumors about what they might be willing to give away this time. Uh, your thoughts on that and what you're hearing? These aren't, guys, that's a great question because these actually aren't disconnected issues. Remember that the Iranian efforts to attack Israel from Syria are being sheltered by these very Russian forces right. that we're seeing now invade Europe. They, they are, these are connected sets of issues. It's also the case that uh, weakness, when you're not prepared to defend the things that matter most, right, the basic ideas uh, of a civil society and protect American security interests, then you do things like this Iran deal, where it's going to be a shorter deal. Iran will have a clear pathway to a nuclear weapon system, and they'll have billions and billions of dollars with which to do it. Last time it was pallets of cash. This time it will be largely unfrozen frozen assets and, and the lifting of, of all the sanctions that we had put in place. You will have a wealthier, stronger Iran cozied up to a, a richer Russia, all of whom are now working to cut deals with Xi Jinping in China as well. This makes the world well, and they're doing joint, less joint military exercises as well, I read. All three of them. Yeah, that's correct, Guy. All three. Well, that's certainly uh, a frightening note that we won't end on because I have one more question on that trip that I mentioned that you were kind enough to invite me along for, where we were in Brussels and then Sochi, I did an interview with you on the trip, but also with your then 
spokeswoman at the State Department, Morgan Ortegas, a friend of ours. She's been on this program. Of course, she was a colleague at Fox for a while. She has now decided to throw her hat in the ring and run for Congress in a district down in Tennessee. I see that you have backed Morgan Ortegas for Congress in that race. Uh, Just your thoughts on her and your experience with her as she now seeks elective office. Guy, having served in Congress, I I know what delivers good outcomes for people of of the congressperson's home district. Morgan has each of those things. She is smart. She is kind. She is generous. She's willing to work her tail off. She understands the central ideas abroad of America first and that we have to get our economy right at home. Uh, The good people of the 5th District of Tennessee will be well served if they vote for Morgan Ortega since she heads to Washington to represent them. I Uh, She did lovely work for me and for President Trump and for America when she served as my spokesman. Mike Pompeo is the former Secretary of State for the United States of America. He is now a colleague here of ours, a Fox News contributor. His organization is CAVPAC. Excuse me. He chairs that organization. And his Twitter feed is at Mike Pompeo. I follow him there. Mr. Secretary, always great to chat. Let's do it again soon, hopefully under less dire circumstances globally. But we do appreciate your insight. You're most welcome. Thank you, Guy. Have a wonderful day. Secretary Pompeo on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for being here. Looks like Secretary Blinken and the foreign minister of Ukraine will be holding a joint press conference at the State Department in the next few minutes. We'll keep an eye on that. We'll monitor if there's any news out of that. In the meantime, just a couple programming notes. Number one, I had promoted on the show yesterday that I'd be filling in or co-hosting, I should say, outnumbered today at noon Eastern Fox News Channel because of this foreign policy heavy breaking news They asked me to shift to another day. So I was not on earlier, but it looks like I'll probably be on March 7th, which is my birthday. So that could be a fun little gift. So hope to see you there then. Just want to give you a heads up. You're not crazy. If you're like, wait, where is he? I thought he said I did. Things just got shifted around a bit. And, of course, that happens with live television. I will be filling in for Kennedy on Fox Business tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. I did the same last night, and we had sort of a fun exchange about – Britney Spears, and a new book that she apparently is writing for $15 million, a tell-all. And I asked the guys, I asked the panel, would they want to buy this book, given the juicy dirt that might be in it? Here's how things went down. Sean Duffy, I thought, was the funniest part of this. Cut 14. I'm not a celebrity tell-all book type of person, but I feel like I might have to read this one Quickly down the line, Jason, I think you and I are like contractually obligated as gays to read the book by Britney Spears. Uh, So, Jason, your answer is yes. But Marie and Sean, is this a book that you pick up and read? Marie. (laughs) Probably. I don't want to admit it, but probably I could use a break from Russia, Ukraine, Epstein news. There's going to be some juicy stuff in there, Sean. Are you a yes? I am not gay, and I think I'm going to get it. Listen, this story is fascinating, and I think it's going to sell off the shelves. Um, again, smart, $15 million for her, and it's going to be a, a crazy bestseller. Also, Sean, I think that was very brave of you to come out there as straight. Uh, that, <laughs> you're plus right. your nine children. News. Your nine children also might have been a clue. Super straight, Sean. So that was a fun conversation, but Christine... 
I feel like the Britney Spears book is something that you're going to devour as soon as it comes out. Yes. Uh, not only that, we're going to book her on this show. If you can book Britney Spears on this show, I will guarantee you a substantial raise. There's an incentive. Britney Spears on GBS. We'll see. Up to you, Cookie. The ball's in your court. Good luck with that one. Coming up, Governor Glenn Youngkin, Republican Virginia. He's next, right here. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. I am very, very happy to have you here with me every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen live, you miss a lot. So there's a podcast for that, GuyBensonShow.com. I am very pleased to welcome back to the show Glenn Youngkin. And as I mentioned at the top of today's show, last time he was here, he was a candidate for governor in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I can now introduce him as the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Glenn Youngkin, welcome back to the show. Congratulations. Guy, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. And uh, it is it is uh, really exciting to be working for 8.6 million bosses in Virginia. I'm having a ball. Well, I'm one of them. And so far, so good from my perspective. I mean, it's been a very busy, what, five weeks on the job so far. And you've had some pretty significant battles already. Did you anticipate the ferocity of the pushback, for example, on your executive order for school masking and choice for parents? There were some of those deep blue counties, I live in one of them, that decided to go the resistance route and hold out. And turned out that you actually had the votes in the legislature to beat them Talk about that whole saga and how you were able to actually win sort of in a rout on behalf of parents and children. We went to work on day one, and I, I, I was surprised that so many people were surprised that we started on day one to fulfill all the promises that we made during our campaign. You know, 11 executive actions and, and 59 bills in our legislature and 25 budget amendments to put to work. Lowering taxes, standing up for parents, better schools, safe communities, getting our economy moving and creating jobs as opposed to being stalled out. And oh, by the way, a government that works for you doesn't tell you what to do all the time. And we went to work right out of the right out of the block. And I guess people were surprised that uh, someone who's elected to office would actually do what he said he was going to do. Um, and yeah, you know what happens when when you make change is there are people that um, are resistant, and it's okay. That's what a democracy is all about. And so, but we're making change, and I am so excited about the great progress that we've made. And and uh, you know, with regards to with regards to parents and and re empowering parents to make decisions for their kids, you know, this was this was not one of these um, partially supported issues. A vast majority of Virginians believe that they they should be able to make decisions with regards to their kids. And uh, and while we had some school boards that pushed back, and I think sadly didn't treat kids that well, and I don't think they'll be. Uh, remembered well in history. Uh, it was great to see a bipartisan move in our legislature to follow up my executive order with legislation and right. codifying it into law. And once that it was codified, the right to make these decisions. And once that codification occurred, one of those holdout boards and counties loud and said, "Okay, we cry, Uncle. We're changing the policy." Some of the others are still kind of making noises like, "Oh, we're taking it under advisement. We're looking at it." Do you expect all counties in Virginia? to comply with the law as of March 1st at the latest? I do. I do. And I think that, uh, you know, a combination of the, the fundamental shift in science and medicine and recognizing it's time 
And second of all, it's the law. And there's just no debate. We, we in fact, had a judge in Loudoun County that universally ruled that my, that my executive order, uh, in fact, it would, would be enforced and, and ordered Loudoun County the next day to give parents the rights to make these decisions. And so it's time, and I'm so excited that Virginia has been able to lead here. This is not about politicians. This is about parents and kids. And we've been, we've been leading on this for a year. And to see the rest of the country, and particularly states led by, led by Democrats, change their mind on this, it's really, really well, awesome. on a dime. But, you know, the reality is, the reality is that if you want to wear a mask, uh, you want your child to wear a mask in Virginia, you can. But, oh, by the way, as a parent, if you don't think that's the right thing for your child, you don't have to wear one. You mentioned some of those Democratic governors. You took a lot of the arrows and attacks in those first couple of weeks of your governorship. Of course, a bunch of other Republican governors had implemented similar choice in their states for a long time, but you were the newly elected governor of a bluer state, and so they came after you. He doesn't care about kids. He doesn't care if they die. He's anti-science. And just a few weeks later, like en masse, there was a stampede toward the exit ramp on this for a bunch of Democratic governors who I guess were realizing that maybe the jig was up. Would you say, Governor, that perhaps you, to borrow a phrase, read the room better than some of these other <laughs> leaders earlier? Yeah, well, I think we did. I think we read the room because we listened to parents. And that's what I am uh, really excited, excited about because, because yeah, we've been talking about this for a year. And been reading the room for a year, mm-hmm. and and to see the rest of the country uh, really follow suit has been great. You know, the reality is uh, when you make change and uh, you you begin to really move away from something that should have been changed a while ago, people are, people are going to throw arrows at you. And I took a few, but that's okay. I'm six six two thirty five, <laughs> and I can take a few arrows. And and uh, we're just going to keep on. We're going to keep on going to work for parents and kids. And and the next phase of this, of course, is is a lot of our uh, efforts and legislation in order to press forward with with our lab school initiative to innovate in K through 12 education and really provide kids multiple choices on 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 schools within the public school system and this is the next exciting thing we're working on. I have to ask it's just a curiosity. You've been very busy so you probably didn't see it but I've been out there advocating that you would be a terrific State of the Union responder for the Republican Party, given what you've done in these early days in the juxtaposition with what's happening in Washington, D.C. It was announced today that Kim Reynolds, the Iowa governor, will in fact be uh, holding that torch for the Republican Party. Did they approach you at all? Were you in that conversation at all? Is that something you can reveal? Well, first of all, I'm very flattered that you would even suggest this. And, of course, you know, I— when when these when these conversations uh, generally start, I think, and I wasn't even governor yet, and so I've been I've been in the seat for five weeks. Um, I am new to this. Governor Reynolds is awesome, and I'm just a big fan of hers, and excited about the response that she's going to provide at a time when we we need a real voice. I mean, of course, what we're seeing in in Washington under under President Biden is high inflation and and weak national uh, defense issues and national security issues and immigration challenges beyond anybody's possible belief. And in fact, the immigration challenges translate into governor challenges um, and we're all having to deal with it. So this is a great chance for, for Governor Reynolds to speak for us all. I so appreciate you, you uh, thinking about me. I'm brand new at this. I'm doing everything I can to serve Virginians. And I have to tell you, I just feel really good about the progress we've made so far. Fair enough. Another political question, then one policy question. 
people, I think a lot of Republicans and conservatives have looked at the way that you won and said, OK, he was able to sort of manage the Trump thing very well. He got the endorsement. You didn't go very often to Trump land, but he never came to the state. You just sort of like managed to keep everyone on side. Do you have a recommendation without getting into him specifically for other Republicans running around the country for office in this very important midterm cycle coming up, how you were able to focus on, you know, state and local issues in particular and maybe sidestep a lot of the national drama that the press likes to harp on a lot of the time? Well, the the national drama is, you're 100 percent right, is where the press focuses. The reality is, of course, voters are worried about what's happening on the local level. And this is where we spend all of our time is low taxes and better schools and and schools that teach our kids how to think, not what to think, and safe communities. And, and oh, by the way, more jobs, more jobs and more jobs and government that works. And that gave us the ability to hug everybody. And I, I just think it's one of these moments that that as a Republican in a state that has been blue uh, for quite a while, uh, we had to hug everybody. And you know what? The platform of better jobs and low taxes and safe communities and great schools appeals to a lot of people. And we found that not only did we get such strong support, of course, out of our base, but we won the independent vote. We had Democrats flying over in droves. We, you know, we, we won the Hispanic vote, the Asian vote. We got more vote from the black community than we've had in a long time. And, and you know, this is, this is a moment for us to recognize that core – Local issues, those kitchen table issues yep. matter. And it builds and it, a coalition, which is what you did in Virginia. And it sounds like taxes might be next or at least one of the next things on your agenda. We'll have to discuss that next time we have you back. Governor Glenn Youngkin, Republican of Virginia. Governor, thank you so much. Guy, thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. You too. We'll step aside. Be right back. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. I want to play some sound from Friday. We held on to it yesterday because of all the breaking news, but this was a really good commentary, yet again, I will add, by Bill Maher on HBO Real Time. Bill Maher is a liberal. In some ways, he's a progressive. We disagree on many, many things, but recently he has been on a roll. And we want to give credit where it's due, and I think it's important, especially when you're fighting big fights like on free speech or against wokeism or against communist China. You have to link arms with people who are willing to speak the truth, even if you disagree on any number of other issues. So on the matter of the Beijing Olympics and the West's kowtowing, a word that Mar gets into here in this monologue, to communist China, this is – Righteous fire from the liberal HBO host, starting in cut eight. Finally, new rule. Someone has to tell China, you can steal our trade secrets, our software and our intellectual property. But we draw the line at our hot freestyle skiers. (laughs) Now, if you've been like me over the past few weeks, glued to your TV watching the Olympics, that makes exactly two of us. We knew there were whole countries, but who knew there was a whole superpower? But 
I'm sure you've heard about American citizen Eileen Gu, the beautiful model, influencer, and now gold medal winning skier who was born and raised here in America but who chose to ski in the Olympics for China. Cool, huh? Is it? Is, is that cool now? To choose to represent a totalitarian police state over America? The S-hole superpower he's referring to is Beijing, and he put up a photo of a less than aesthetically pleasing Olympic setting for one of, I believe, the ski events with like a nuclear power plant right next door. He went on, cut nine. The Olympics pretends to only be about sports, but of course the games have always been a bit of a proxy war for which country has the best system. And by choosing Team China, Eileen Gu became a living symbol of China's triumph over the West, which wouldn't bother me so much if I thought China had triumphed over us in the ways that really matter, but they haven't. Now, we do have human rights issues right here at home, we do, but we're still at least for another three years a a democracy based on freedom. And they are an authoritarian surveillance state based on how would you like to disappear for a few months? Like that uh, tennis player who recently vanished for a while when she said she'd been raped by a government official. We do still throw too many black people in jail. But perspective matters. You don't have to agree with every word of this to appreciate what he's saying to his audience from the left. And this equivalency that people try to draw, and we rail against it on this show, it's like, oh, well, we have problems in America, and we have social justice issues here, so who are we to judge or really comment on what's happening in China because we've got money to make over there, or we are myopic, woke people who only care about political issues here at home, and we're total frauds on social justice abroad, particularly in a communist dictatorship. Marr drills down on this point saying, okay, if you believe that we have an overpopulation of African-Americans in prison here, well, what would you say if you were an intellectually honest person about what China is up to? Cut 10. China has basically jailed an entire ethnic minority, the Uyghurs, a situation that both the Trump and Biden administrations has called a genocide. America is not close to that. And it's a cynical dodge to pretend that China's sins should be overlooked because we all do it. No. In 1997, Britain returned Hong Kong to China with an agreement that Beijing, that from Beijing, that Hong Kong could retain its free press, honest courts, and democratic government. Well, they lied. Democracy and freedom are being crushed there, and China doesn't want anyone to talk about it. And because so much money is involved, no one does. Two years ago, when the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, tweeted, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, he was forced to apologize. (laughs) In America, we're supposed to root for democratic government, not apologize for it. Yes, amen. I was watching this, and I was like, preach. He's pivoted to the NBA. They deserve every single rhetorical flogging that they get for this. And Marr wasn't done just pulling the lid off of the hypocrisy at play and the greed, the craven greed. And this may not be breaking news for conservatives, certainly not people who listen to this show. But again, coming from the left, even though he's a bit of an iconoclast on the left these days, I think it matters. Go get him, Bill. Cut 11. But the NBA has a television deal with China worth a billion and a half dollars. So LeBron James said 
Maury needed to be educated on the situation. The situation being, I got some shoes to sell. Kowtow is a Chinese word, but boy, Americans have gotten good at it. For years, Google proudly refused to kowtow to Chinese censors, adopting the slogan, don't be evil. But the Chinese market proves so lucrative that, well, okay, a little evil. (laughs) That's the deal China offers American companies and celebrities. We'll give you access to our billion-plus consumers as long as you shut up about the whole police state genocide thing. And finally, he was talking about John Cena, the wrestler actor who said publicly that Taiwan was a country in passing, which it is. Taiwan is its own independent country. But the Chinese don't believe that. The government doesn't believe it. So Cena, who wanted to make a lot of money on his movies because there's a big box office market in China, apologized and Marr mocked him for it in Cut 13. So we were treated to this video. And this is Cena apologizing in Mandarin. And I thought steroids shrunk your balls. Wowee, when a country can make your big, muscly, macho man action stars grovel in their language, you know you're somebody's b- <laughs> In the original Top Gun, Tom Cruise wore a bomber jacket with the flags of several Asian countries that are our allies sewn on the back. Well, the flag for Taiwan has now magically disappeared for the upcoming Top Gun Maverick. Well, he used to be a maverick. Now he does whatever China says. So he was just roasting them. And it is all absolutely deserved. The full monologue I posted at townhall.com in a piece this week, it's worth watching. There's also a New York Times piece talking about this phenomenon, the West literally selling out its values to communist China. It is a very serious problem and a very real and, I fear, expanding phenomenon. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Martha McCallum joins us when we return. Don't go anywhere. in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour of our program on this Tuesday from New York. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And you can also get the program round the clock for free on the podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Check me out tonight on Kennedy. I'll be filling in for the great lady. 7 p.m. Eastern time. Fox Business. Looking forward to that. 
Last night was fun as well. And the happy hour, as always, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious, just fantastic. We recommend it if you're 21-plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. They are really expanding across the country and might be coming to a state near you. Where is it sold? You can check at thelongdrink.com if they're in your neighborhood. You can also order online, which is what we do, thelongdrink.com. Very happy to welcome back to the show our friend and colleague here at Fox News, Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story, 3 p.m. Eastern every day on Fox every weekday. Also the co-anchor for Fox News Politics. She'll be joining and leading the coverage of the State of the Union coming up here shortly. She's also author of the bestseller, Unknown Valor. Her podcast is The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Martha, great to have you back as always. Guy, good to be with you. How are you? I am doing well. I want to ask you about the Russia situation, but through a slightly different prism. I was thinking about this last night. I wrote a piece this morning for townhall.com about it. I'm not that interested in taking a lot of political shots back and forth domestically when I think the clear culprit here, the person who is overwhelmingly at fault, is Vladimir Putin. I do think that it is still worthwhile occasionally to take a step back and assess not even ancient history, but recent history. And I couldn't help but go back in the memory bank to 2012 when Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee for president and he was asked about Russia. He was asked about, more specifically, our biggest geopolitical adversary and challenge. And he said it was the Russians at the time. And this caused gales of laughter and ridicule from people in the media. The Democrats jumped all over him, jumped down his throat for it. Barack Obama famously, during a presidential debate that cycle, which you covered very closely, said this and got a lot of applause from the news media for this one-liner in Cut 7. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. But, Governor, you know, when it comes to our foreign policy, you seem to want to import the foreign policies of the 1980s, just like the social policies of the 1950s and the economic policies of the 1920s. So, by the way, Romney was not saying al-Qaeda was not a threat. He also mentioned China, but he was asked a specific question and gave certainly a defensible answer at the time, even more so today. Joe Biden not to be outdone, then the vice president, now the president, piled on in cut six. Governor Romney's answer, I thought, was incredibly revealing. He acts like he thinks the Cold War is still on. Russia is still our major adversary. I don't know where he's been. I mean, we have disagreements with Russia, but they're united with us on Iran. The only way we're getting, one of only two ways we're getting material into Afghanistan or our troops is through Russia. They are working closely with us. They've just said to Europe, if there is an oil shutdown in any way in the Gulf, they'll consider increasing oil supplies to Europe. That's not, this is not 1956. Yeah, uh, they were not with us on Iran, for example, but that was the Biden-Obama line back then. Very different tune now, and it sort of all shifted when the Democrats decided Russia was the greatest threat, trying to meddle in our elections and all of that. And we've heard nothing but Russia, Martha, now for the last, what, six years or so. 
I just feel like there needs to be some accountability about who was right and who was wrong and who dismissed Romney's answer out of hand back then, 10 years ago, for political reasons. Well, it's so interesting listening to that guy. And one of the things that really jumps out at me is when now President Biden talks about how Russia would kindly be willing to help to get uh, fuel to Europe. Yeah, and I right. thought, of course he would. <laughs> of course he would. In fact, he had been working on that for years and um, was about to achieve it with this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would go around Ukraine and uh, provide 40 percent of the fuel to much of Europe. So um, one of the good news things that's happened so far today is that Germany has said that they will shut that pipeline down. I, I hope that they will have stick to right. in that decision. Temporarily, uh, the at least. The, yeah, temporarily, at least. So we'll see where that goes. So, you know, one of the interesting things in politics is always the very long view and the understanding of the chess game and the dynamics, right? And and you sort of see it in a number of those sound bites that you just played in terms of understanding. And, and perhaps Mitt Romney had a better understanding of what Russia's long-term goals were at that point. Um, you know, I think most people would still look at the world and say that China poses the largest threat to the United States and to the geopolitical order. But the thing that, that Vladimir Putin, it's very interesting to me, um, he, he, he hasn't been hiding his thinking uh, in any way over the course of these decades. Mm-hmm. He's been super clear about it. Um, he has always said that he felt that after the Cold War uh, and with the with the addition of, of the countries on his border to NATO, essentially that, that the second Cold War had already begun. Uh, he's been fighting to get the missiles that were placed there in those NATO countries away from him. He felt that after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, they, it was a bad time to assemble all of these NATO countries on his border to bring them all into an, a, an alliance that was designed to protect Europe against Russia right after the fall of the Soviet Union and the beginning of their democracy, which we know um, you know, now has a leader who seems to be getting around the democratic process and staying in power um, indefinitely. But one of the other things that keeps jumping out at me, just when you think about what has been said in the past by these leaders, is the moment when then-President Obama, who's, you know, sort of snickering at Mitt Romney about Russia, uh, leans over to Medvedev and says to him, you know, after my election, I'll I'll have a little more um, flexibility flexibility on getting those missiles away from you. I know that's what Vladimir Putin really wants, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, And Medvedev says, thank you so much. I'll pass along, you know, your message to to Vladimir Putin um, that you're you're flexible after the election on moving those missiles away from our borders. So um, this there's a long, long history here, and there's a lot of mistakes to go around. For sure. And I would also note that Obama promised that flexibility. Obama and Biden talked about really our partnership with Russia to ridicule and sort of kneecap Mitt Romney. And then midway through roughly Obama's second term, Putin turned right around as a big thank you and stole Crimea from Ukraine. And now it looks like he's taking another bite out of Ukraine, at least under Biden. Uh, who was the vice president at the time. I would just say one last piece on this particular narrative or this thought process. Chris Saliza, who's at CNN now, I think he was at the Washington Post back then, if memory serves, he had tweeted at the time in 2012, the best line of the debates in that cycle was the 80s called quip from Barack Obama. Ten years later, Saliza writes a piece today at CNN.com saying it's time to admit Mitt Romney was right about Russia. Just a decade late, but the politics have shifted. I mean, I guess you get half a clap 
for reassessing your view 10 years later. <laughs> you know, Barack Obama was safely reelected, so on and so forth. I just think this can be revealing not just about the principles, but about the way they are covered by the press. In the meantime, Martha, I want to ask you about the story that several people I've seen on our air have been talking about today. The ratings are in, and the Beijing Winter Olympics were an absolute dud. Horrifically bad ratings, record low in the United States. I wonder if you have reflections on that. I didn't watch because of the host country, the host regime, even though I love the Winter Olympics. I wonder if you think this was a lot of people boycotting or there are other factors at play. But, I mean, the numbers were brutal. You know, I think it's a number of factors. I think that there was a lot of turnoff. I don't, I'm not sure that people are that enthusiastic about tuning in to watch a regime that has, you know, a million Uyghurs in concentration camps and has hauled people off. I, I think there is, you know, I also think in a general sense, the Olympics have become so much more sort of professional and so the, the lines have become so blurred in terms of who's competing for whom um, that I think it has sort of diluted that feeling of national pride in the teams, right? I mean, for example, you have Eileen Gu, who lives yeah. in California, um, this superstar halfpipe uh, skier. And, you know, you, you look at this young woman who is in so many ways so American. Her mother is, is uh, from China. But she decides to ski for China. And I think that was just sort of a quintessential example of what really turned people off yeah. about these Olympics. Because right, she trained um, here, right? She's an American in every way. Here, she's an American citizen, absolutely. although she, she yes. won't really – she's and, and coy like, about where her citizenship lies because she wants to appeal to the Chinese market. She chose to go compete on behalf of this genocidal regime, and at least financially that was the right call because she's made, what, $30 million in endorsement deals over there, but a lot of Americans are like, whoa, that is sort of a gross calculation to make given what the Chinese regime's up to. But, you know, there's a lot of money at play, which, to your point, sort of cuts against the whole amateur competition thing. Exactly. And, you know, one of the occasionally you'll have people who, because they have, you know, a parent from another country, if they can't make it, it used to be if you couldn't make to the, the U.S. team, then perhaps you would consider using that, you know, other passport to see if you could get on another team. Right. She's a gold medalist. Um, there was there was no problem with her getting on the team. And it just smacks of, you know, you look at um, I think of N.S. Cantor and all of these these athletes who have gone the opposite route from him in terms of calling out what's going in China and the NBA, which just continually looks the other way. And I think that it just worse. all of this sort of um, California sentiment about China. Just it just is so it's just so weak. Um, and all of these people who tend to who to speak out for tolerance and understanding and all of these PC notions are just it's so hypocritical for them to stand up and then represent China in the Olympics or it, it, it really is. It just smacks of such hypocrisy. And I think people are kind of done with it. And I love the Winter Olympics. Yep. I love to watch skiing. I watched a fair amount of it, um, not as much as I used to. But there's a purity that just seems to be missing from the competition these days because of all that. The craziest thing I watched was the closing night of the women's ice skating. Yeah. And we talked about it, it yesterday. Bizarre. Totally it crazy. So bizarre. I, I called it the, the agony, you know, the thrill of victory and the agony of winning a medal. 
because <laughs> all of good. these people who won medals were literally in little piles on the floor sobbing. And the, the woman who came in second from Russia, she's screaming and yelling because she didn't get a gold. And I, I, I've never seen anything like it. It was the most, it was the just the most kind of pitiful, sickening outcome with this young woman who was accused of doping. And, you know, she falls four times out there and falls into fourth place. I was like, what is going on? What has happened to the Olympics? It's just a complete mess. Yeah, it was one of the worst Olympics ever and was the lowest rated Olympics in the United States ever. And I have to say I get a little bit of satisfaction from that outcome. I think the American people sent a message and a lot of worry, I think, among human rights activists, actual ones, not the fake wokesters. They were concerned that maybe there would be widespread apathy and people wouldn't care about the human rights abuses in China. But I think a lot of people did, as you noted there, Martha. I briefly mentioned during your intro the upcoming State of the Union address for President Biden, March 1st at the Capitol. I saw one report that Democrats are hoping that Biden can turn things around at the speech and that he's going to really use that big platform to reverse his political fortunes, which have been you know, dreadful recently. The polling has been awful. I am skeptical that a State of the Union address really, even though it is still a very big platform, can be a game changer anymore these days. Uh, is that too cynical of a view? I just I feel like if they're putting their eggs in that basket, they're setting themselves up for some disappointment. Yeah, you know, I, first of all, the State of the Union usually takes place around the end of January. Um, you know, once again, you had sort of the COVID, I guess, delay and all of that. So now we're into March with this, and I think that it's obvious that there were some expectations or hopes on the part of the White House that some things would have solidified a little bit in their direction, that they would have a better narrative, a better backdrop for the speech. Mm -hmm. So now, I mean, now you've got a speech that's going to have to be about foreign policy. And it's just so interesting. I'm always struck by the fact, as, as president, you can win an election, but you cannot dictate and what, what your presidency is going to be about. And that's why you have to be so super prepared for, for anything in that job, right? There wasn't even a foreign policy debate in the 2020 election. Yep. And everyone, you know, there was this assumption that, oh, well, Joe Biden was on the Foreign Relations Committee for such a long time. And, you know, he tweeted a year ago, I think almost to the date today, that, oh, you know, Putin doesn't want me to win because I'm the only person who can, you know, basically stand up to him is the sentiment of this tweet. So now's the moment, right? So now he has to prove that on the world stage. And it's quite clear that Putin has taken this moment and said, you know, I think I can get away with it at this time. Now, Joe Biden's going to have to give a heck of a speech if he wants to turn around that narrative. He's got inflation to deal with. He has low uh, approval numbers. Who knows? I mean, maybe his performance on handling this situation will will help will help him. Yeah, I I just don't know if he's capable of giving a great speech. Right. And I don't know if even if he did give a great speech, would it have any needle moving impact with any lasting power at all, any staying power? Martha McCallum, my guest on The Guy Benson Show, will step aside and be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the happy hour. We're back on The Guy Benson Show with Martha McCallum, our colleague here at Fox News. And I wanted to get your reaction, Martha, quickly to two stories. Yesterday on the show, we celebrated here that the show that comes on right after yours on Fox News Channel, Your World with Neil Cavuto, had its anchor back after more than a month off the air because of some serious health struggles. I was delighted to see Neil back in the anchor chair. 
In Saturn News last night, we learned that our former colleague Bob Beckel, longtime liberal on the five, passed away at the age of 73. Uh, just your reaction the, to the good news on Neil and the Saturn News with Bob. Well, let me start with the Saturn News with Bob, because um, Bob was, you know, a teddy bear, and he was a friend to all of us here, and he will be sorely missed. Um, he was a legend in Democratic circles, and he had a wealth of knowledge. He used to sit on a chair outside of where the five was outside and, you know, smoke his cigar and chat with anybody who came by. And we had court. a lot of good talks out there. Um, so, Bob, you know, rest in peace, and you'll be sorely missed, uh, and you're time here and your time in, in politics will never be forgotten. With regard to Neil, on the happier note, um, I was so thrilled to see Neil back yesterday. We're all so glad that he has recovered from his second bout with COVID. And um, he's one tough guy, Neil Cavuto. He's been through a lot and he has bounced back. Um, and I think one of the things that is so integral to that is his spirit. Mm -hmm. He's an incredibly positive person who believes in overcoming whatever is thrown against, thrown at him. And God bless him. He's a real role model to us all. He is. And he is so nice. One of the nicest people you will ever meet. Well said, Martha. We really appreciate you taking some time with us here on the show today. And we will talk to you very soon. Maybe we'll see you down in D.C. for the State of the Union. Yeah, we'll be there. All right, sounds Looking good. Martha McCallum on The Guy Benson Show. We will be right back with more of the happy hour next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour, but a pretty serious day of news. And joining us earlier in the program was someone to help us walk through what to make of the events of the last 24, 48 hours in particular. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, now a Fox News contributor. He's chairman of CAVPAC. He was here with us. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Pompeo. Here's part of my discussion with the former Secretary of State. I wonder what your thoughts were watching the president today. You know, Guy, it felt to me very much like it was months and months late and several billion rubles short of what's needed to actually deter Vladimir Putin from continuing his march across Eastern Europe. Uh, we'll have to see what really meets the eye. Suggested they were going to put sanctions on some banks and some financial institutions and on Putin himself. That's all. That's all fine. It probably should have been done a long time ago. But the, the rubber will meet the road to see the scope and the breadth of those sanctions, that they really have the impact that is necessary to put enormous financial pressure on Vladimir Putin and his oligarchs and the regime there in Russia. If we do those things, there's a chance that we will change the calculus for Vladimir Putin. In the meantime, uh, what we can see for sure, you, you mentioned the financial markets being world today. Uh, for every American, we're going to find, if we don't get this right, that we have higher food prices. Lots of red winter wheat comes out of Ukraine and out of Western Russia. We're going to have higher energy prices because not only now have we uh, allowed Russia to uh, impede the flow of uh, crude, crude oil and natural gas across the world, but we've shut down our own energy industry. And so, you know, the 97 bucks a barrel oil is fueling Vladimir Putin's capacity to do precisely what we saw him today. I, I, don't, I don't think what we saw President Biden announce today is going to turn the tide. I don't think it's going to convince Vladimir Putin to change his view that a minor incursion is completely acceptable. Mr. Secretary, I was actually thinking last night about a trip that you invited me along for when you were Secretary of State. I was part of the press contingent, and we 
at one of our stops in Sochi, Russia. And I remember walking into the room and all of a sudden there was Vladimir Putin 10 feet away from me, which he does have a bit of a chilling presence. Earlier in the day, there was a joint press event with you and your then counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, who, of course, is still the foreign minister in Moscow. And I had the opportunity to ask one of the questions of the minister, and it was about their meddling at the time in Venezuela. And you may or may not remember, but he launched into this Jeremiah, this alternate (laughs) history, right? Just he was angry and attacking the West, and they had all these, you know, grievances about imperialism and all this nonsense to deflect away from what the Russians were doing. And I thought about that because of the speech we heard from Putin himself yesterday with that wild roller coaster of his version of world history. This is part of the Russian government's whole worldview, right, that that they're sort of the good guys, unsurprisingly, but the whole rest of the world is sort of aligned against them, and they have this special, unique version of truth that really doesn't actually align with objective truth. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that, hearing from Putin yesterday, including his remarks about Ukraine not even being, in his view, a real country or a legitimate country. Yeah, I remember that trip very well. That would have been the final time that I actually was with Vladimir Putin. Your point about him being chilling is true. It's also the case that he is cunning and uh, a risk taker and someone who thinks that, in fact, the destruction of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. That's what you heard from Foreign Minister Lavrov in response to your question. I remember it well. Mm -hmm. He went on for quite some time with a a fantastical recitation of history that is certainly not the history that the rest of the world knows. Whether we know it or not, they have their own view, and you see the results that Vladimir Putin has undertaken to 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 rebuild what they believe is rightfully theirs, the, the West task, the West task, uh, NATO, Europe, the United States, uh, all, all of us who believe that every human being has a dignity and that well, rule of law matters, those, those basic precepts, we have to impose costs at a significant level in a way that will deter whether it's Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or Chairman Kim in North Korea. We have to do the things that will preserve the order of the world that we have come to benefit from. Prosperity, security here at home depends on our willingness to continue to do the things that drive uh, a world that behaves in a way that's consistent with what we hope to accomplish uh, as, the, as the world moves forward. A, a set of rules, not a set of autocratic dictators driving world history. Former President Trump put out a statement earlier. He also gave an interview as well. And he was asked about what's happening in Ukraine right now, what the Russians are doing. And the long and the short of his response is Putin and the Russians would never have done this. It would not have been fathomable if I were president. Do you think that's true? Here's what I I know for certain. Uh, Vladimir Putin, when you met him when I was a secretary of state and long before that, hasn't changed. His view as a KG, former KGB officer, his view of history, his desire to recreate the, the buffer zone for Russia, that hasn't changed. What changed after the four years that I was Secretary of State and President Trump was president? What changed was American leadership. We, we showed up and said climate change is the most important thing in the world to us. Uh, we said, if you shut down a gasoline pipeline in the southeast of the United States, no, no problem. Please just don't do it again. We gave him a, a, a new treaty, an extension of a treaty that we would have never given them. And I think he saw, I think he saw a green light. And so I can only say this for sure. 
It didn't happen on our watch for those four years. It is, seems unfathomable to me that Vladimir Putin would have undertaken such an endeavor were we still there. As for the pipeline, and a lot of people have made the point many times that the Biden administration came in and shut down our big pipeline here, that full exchange with Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, in the latter part of the Trump administration, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. The whole podcast is available. The entire show, start to finish, on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Two shockers about producer Christine. I have no words. We will share these when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. On the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, we talked Olympics yesterday during the home stretch, the Beijing Olympics. I preferred that Olympics. Lake Placid, New York, 1980, one of the most epic moments ever in Olympic history. And I mention it because that happened in 1980 on this date, February 22nd, the miracle on ice. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. I have been asked the question before, if you could go back and be physically present for any sports moment in history, what would you choose? And I think back to certain World Series victories for my Yankees or Stanley Cup victories for my New Jersey Devils or big Northwestern wins Over time, for a long time, there weren't many to choose from, but there have been some good wins through the years. To me, it's not even close. I want to be in that building in upstate New York, losing my mind as Team USA beat the Soviets in a massive upset. That's my answer, and it's not close. We were just going to move on past that, except in the show meeting earlier, We were talking about the miracle on ice, and it was the anniversary today, and I was watching that clip, Al Michaels calling the action for ABC at the time. And producer Christine had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. She's like, what is it? Do you believe in magic? Like, are you serious? What do you mean? I know she's not a sports fan. We've established that, but this is not really a sports moment, although it is. It's a cultural, iconic moment. It also had so much political relevance at the time to beat the Soviets, the heavily favored Soviets. In the 80 Olympics, leading up to Reagan's victory, there was just a lot of significance beyond merely a hockey game that was at play on that ice that day. America needed that. There was the malaise of the Carter era. Movies have been made about this, The Miracle on Ice. Producer Christine had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. You've never heard of this, Christine? I have now. Prior to this, you'd never heard of this. Can I claim vaguely it sounded familiar once I heard it? Can I? Can I? No. No? No. No. You, you would never, like, no. do you believe in miracles? Yes. You had never seen the clip, heard it, conversations about that moment in time. 
Uh, no. The and- movie with, who was it? Uh, Herb Brooks was the coach. I forget who they had portraying him. The movie was called Miracle. It was good. Kirk Russell. Yeah, I went, I saw it in the theater. People were cheering in the movie theater when it came out. People were chanting USA in the movie theater. Sounds pretty patriotic. And just nothing. You're drawing a complete blank here. Right over. It sounds great. I mean, I, I, I'll i go watch, I'll watch a Kurt Russell movie anytime. You know what my theory is on this? Hmm. I think you don't know about this because they wouldn't let the Soviets know about it at the time. It was so embarrassing and humiliating. And the evil Americans won that in your training out in Siberia, preparing to be a Soviet spy as you were (laughs) earlier in your life, of course, you were training for your aerobics championship and you were not allowed to know about Team USA beating your Soviets in 1980. Boy, did I just give that to you. (laughs) I mean, as soon as you said, I didn't know, but I'm like, in Mother Russia, we did not know. We won. The government probably told you guys that you won. Sorry, yet we won. USA. Now you have to go watch the movie Miracle. I think you'll like it because it's well done. They had some real hockey players in the movie, if I recall correctly. And it is like truly one of the most shocking things that's ever happened in sports. It's phenomenal. So watch the actual clip and then go watch Kurt Russell, Miracle. Meanwhile, this is not the only layer of the onion that peeled off today. In the same meeting, we thought we had just an easy layup, like a breakaway dunk to go to another sport. On a topic for the home stretch, which is today is National Margarita Day, apparently. It was Drinking Wine Day last week, I believe. That was an easy one to talk to you about, Mama's Juice. Here's another fan favorite margaritas. I am decamping on a vacation, embarking on a journey tomorrow, so I'll be off for the next couple shows. I very much plan to enjoy several margaritas in the coming days, perhaps in honor of this fake national holiday Or I would just do it anyway, regardless. And then you revealed to the Guy Benson Show family what shocking piece of information. I don't drink margaritas. I'm not a tequila girl. I I honestly, I don't think I've ever ordered a margarita. So how do you know if you don't like them? And I've I've tried it. I've tasted it. You don't think it's good? No, I'm a vodka girl, remember? I Well, I know that. There's a D in the word, vodka. but And that would make sense. Wodka, I think, is how you people say it over there, right? It would make sense that you would only drink vodka. In fact, this is all aligning. You never heard about the hockey win in 1980. You can't drink a margarita because you like your vodka. I mean, they should have probably had you learn more things about the country you were coming to penetrate because, I mean, you're kind of— There's some red flags, some commie red flags flapping here. What kind of self-respecting American says, no, I want a nice pink, almost red Cosmo, but not a margarita? No. Like a good spicy marg with a little bit of zip to it. Oh, it's delicious. I think you and I have gone to dinner. We've ordered something like that. First of all, I don't do spice. Something like that? Have Have you never heard of margaritas? Just yeah, like, no, I know, but like, what's up with what the is, spice? Why do people have drink? to add spice to it? I don't know. I don't, oh, I like sh- a little jalapeno action in there? It's absolutely I would delicious. never order a spicy Cosmo. Well, it's, it's a different taste profile. So you have a little spice in the marg, some chips and guac by the pool. 
100%. I feel like you should probably be reintroduced to margaritas. Well, okay, I'm just going to tell you one more thing, and then we should probably go because this is going to probably not be good. I don't like guacamole. Do you not eat avocados at all? Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. But, uh, like, chips and guac with margaritas by a pool, like, none of that sounds good to me. You just want to be doing shots of vodka by your ice fishing hole? Icy, icy cold vodka shots. Like, give me that near pool any day. Disgusting. Disgusting. Would you do queso and chips? I'm not sure I really have had queso before. I'm not... (laughs) You've never had queso? What is happening here? What is wrong with you, honestly? You've never had queso like warm, cheesy dip? That with guac is so I've good. had like spinach and artichoke nope, dip. Nope, nope, that is not, not the no, same like thing. No, like that queso. Remember that picture Dana Perino once put up where she oh, made queso? Well, that, that, was, that I've never had. No. Well, I think no one's had that. Whatever that was, that was not queso. Have you had salsa? I don't really like salsa at all. But people like to say salsa. That's a Seinfeld line. Have you seen Seinfeld? Have you heard of that show, Christine? Uh-huh. Stop it. You have seen Seinfeld. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen episodes of Seinfeld, sure. What is Independence Day in this country, Christine? When did we uh, break away and from whom? <laughs> I just like quick little patriotism. Can we go back to like Pop making quiz. fun of YY or something? No, I, don't, no. I don't like this segment no, at no. all. No, no, we have, we have YY the clown at least... Likes a guacamole and a marg from time to time, I would bet. No way. I bet you anything he doesn't eat salsa and guacamole, if I had to guess. Dan, am I losing my mind here? No, you're not losing your mind. I absolutely love margaritas, and we're going to go get some and not bring her. And I do have a question for you, though. What's your favorite kind, frozen or on the rocks, with salt, without salt? Definitely no salt. I'm not a salt guy. I like frozen and on the rocks, but probably prefer slightly on the rocks, which is a change. I started when I was younger in my early drinking days, college, a big frozen margarita, which Cookie might actually prefer now that I think about it. Start her on a frozen like strawberry or something, margarita, mango, something like that. Yeah. But on the rocks, and I have to say it's vain, a skinny margarita I think is just as delicious. No salt. It's just a little bit less caloric. Wyatt. Do you drink margaritas? Do you eat any of the aforementioned snacks, or are you with Christine? So I will agree with Christine on one thing: is I'm not a guacamole fan, but I do like margaritas. Last time when I was in Disney World and we were around Epcot, maybe had a few different margaritas. There we go. Several. Okay, possibly. I will. I will forgive you guac because Marg, especially today on National Margarita Day, is the priority. So, Christine, you're out. What will you forgive me on? Nothing. Nothing, sorry. And not today. I told you he's the favorite. Well, he made it easy today with all these answers we're getting. My goodness. If I sound a little slap happy, it's because I am. We're so close to vacation for me. I'll be off the next few days. Fantastic live guest hosts covering all the news as it unfolds. A lot of news, of course happening in the world and in this country. We have you covered on The Guy Benson Show. I will be filling in for Kennedy tonight. Fox Business, 7 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. Talk to you next Monday on The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Because people like to say salsa. 
Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.